what you can do with that promotion. Colonel Dax, you will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Since the publication of the book 25 years ago, no one dared to make this movie. It was too shocking, too frank. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say, 5% killed by our own barrage. It's a very generous allowance. 10% more in getting through no man's land, and 20% more getting through the wire. That leaves 65%, with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill, we're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half of my men will be killed. Aside from the inescapable fact that a good many of your men never left the trenches, there's the question of the troops' morale. Don't forget that. The troops' morale? Certainly. These executions will be a perfect tonic for the entire division. There are few things more fundamentally encouraging and stimulating than seeing someone else die. Name are they? On the left. Where are they? Zero plus one, and they're still in the trenches. They're not advancing. Miserable cowards. They're not advancing. The barrage is getting away from them. They're still in the trenches. Yes, Captain Nichols. Yes, sir. Order 75 to commence firing on our own positions. Welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Tonight we're going to be talking about Paths of Glory, uh, our first Stanley Kubrick movie that we've discussed on on, on this podcast thus far. Um, you know, after we did a pretty a pretty big uh, Kubrick run on uh, on on GTA, which was you know, I mean, we did we did Clockwork Orange, Shining, um, Doctor Strange Love, of uh, I feel like I'm missing at least one. Oh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, we did, yeah, we did Full Metal Jacket too. 
So, uh, you know, our, our Kubrick library so far has been pretty stacked, at least, you know, cross shows. Um, I think, I think this, you know, th this might be my favorite Kubrick movie that we've watched besides Dr. Strangelove, um, or that I've watched. Not uh, Clockwork Orange. I like Clockwork Orange, but like, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, like, like when I saw Clockwork Orange, I'll totally, you know, be honest, like, like that movie spoke to me in weird ways that, uh, I didn't know um, I could be spoken to about. And uh, I was just so enamored of it. But that that's mostly because that was like uh, probably his most like visual, like experimenting with using, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> well, I, I mean, you could also say 2001 is, but like, you know, using storytelling techniques uh, visually uh, in very unique ways. So. so take it on acid or watch it on acid, right? That's what I got from that. <laughs> I've never seen Clockwork Orange, so I'm you thinking about. You should definitely not yeah. watch that movie on acid. No. Okay. No. no. Oh. Okay. Cool. No, be that will psychologically damage you. Yeah. Unless you... your parents, of course, hand you a um, hundred thousand dollars, and then you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever. I don't want to live with resentment towards my parents for giving me a hundred thousand dollars. That sounds awful. <laughs> and to discover it during an acid trip. Oh my God. Well, Clockwork Orange, I always find is. Um nostalgic for me because uh reminds me of my childhood because like that's what england looks like i mean obviously it's a bit fancied up but like uh, the urban housecape that reminds me of home there's something there's something uh quintessentially uh british about like the messaging of like the evils of liberalism that comes at the end of that with the, with the guy trying to basically like overthrow the government by making uh you know like his resentment towards like alex making him like insane enough to jump out of that window <laughs> I don't know. I just I feel like the the liberal conservative dichotomy in that movie is pretty fantastic. Um, like the only yeah, Kubrick so, movie I've seen so far is Full Metal Jacket, and um, and this one. A, yeah, well, this unless, one too. Um, unless you unless you didn't actually <laughs> well, watch it and you're showing up and you're just gonna go along I, with I, everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I've watched it to be honest, but yeah, this is the um, the second Kubrick movie I've seen uh, since Full Metal Jacket. Um, and like a quick word for that movie, I mean, for, for a Vietnam movie, um, all I can say is uh, like, wow, impressive in a way. Yeah, for for, uh, for anti-war, like if you're looking at a good like anti-war Vietnam movies, there's three of them, Apocalypse Now, uh, Full Metal Jacket, and Platoon are all really good yeah, ones. Yeah, all their stuff. And then, you know, I remember uh, when Forrest approached me to, to come on, it was, it was like anti-war movie. I was like, oh, I went to those three, but you know, I hadn't seen Path, Paths of Glory. Which is wild to me because All Quiet on Western Front was my favorite book growing up. So World War One history. My dad was a history guy. So um, with that book, I read it like over and over again while everyone else was reading Harry Potter. Uh, and so not seeing Paths of Glory as a kid, and I, maybe I did. My dad, my dad took me to 2001: A Space Odyssey in the theaters when it like made a repeat in theaters for like a week. Uh, fucking wild. I was like 14 when I saw it. But um, yeah, Paths of Glory. This this movie for being 1958 is so, I mean, it's based on a true story, right? But like mm. how Kubrick did it and still we haven't learned a fucking thing in society and, and the way we run things. Cause if you look over and over again and we'll talk about it today, but I have a lot to say about this this film as far as what it portrays and how uh, we just tend to never listen. Yeah. Ever. And and I think that World War One is kind of the perfect um, war to make these points because obviously, you know, you know like they could have made it about Korea or, you know, I mean, World War II, obviously we're kind of still living in like the, almost like the glory of it. Like our, our position being the correct position that kind of led to 
U.S. hegemony, like you know, um, like dominating the rest of the world, really. But That's World War One, yeah, World War One isn't really that well taught because I feel like in a lot of cases because there weren't Nazis, you know what I mean? Like that we were fighting, like we were, we were fighting, like it just kind of was like a clusterfuck. So making that movie at a time when like modern war techniques were being used for the first time, like you know what I mean, like machine guns and like you know just all of these different strategies to, to try to um you know to try to make war a lot more brutal but at the same time there wasn't the distance that like we kind of have from it now or or you know and there wasn't the like chaos of of, of vietnam like the, the way that you know that like we were surprised by by the fucking guerrilla fighting techniques like it was really it's, it's the perfect like hand-to-hand close combat war um to make these points in i feel like there was, I mean, that was the first introduction of machine guns. It was the first introduction of tanks. Uh, you had planes now. Uh, and all these things culminated into, I mean, easily one of the bloodiest wars in, in world history, probably the bloodiest with the trench warfare bayonet. You know, there's a whole dialogue in this film about uh, you would rather die from a bayonet or a machine gun. And he was like, well, machine gun. But either way, it's it's just metal piercing you. You know, Yeah, that, very- that, that's one of the most like poignant scenes in the movie, I think. They say, you know, the truth is nobody wants to get injured. Like, you know, if you really were afraid of dying, you'd be living in fear of dying for the rest of your life. But like being afraid of getting injured, you know, because yeah, and you can see what the, like even like the, the flimsy helmets they're kind of wearing the entire time. Like, don't I mean, they kind of protect your, your, your head, but it doesn't protect you against shell shock and it doesn't protect you against injuries to the rest of your body. And, you know, in, in this war in particular, like they're running around with fucking machine guns and bayonets, like the chance of your body just getting like ripped up by something, even if you survive. I know, I, like, I think my great grandfather served in World War One and like got mustard gas, and was like, and had to like live with that for the rest of his life, and it caused him like severe health problems for the maybe it was my great 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 grandfather. I don't know, but you know that that was like something that like it was horrifying. Um, I think once people kind of knew about it after the fact, and and saw the aftermath of it. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to throw to Gene first and uh, get some get some background on. Um, on, you know, how they ended up in the stalemate that this movie is based around in 1914, 1915, that kind of, you know, there was like a couple years of, of no side really advancing uh, past the points that they kind of captured. Yeah, sure. So, you know, obviously we can go into this topic as deep as you want, but, you know, I'll give the kind of cliff notes, I guess, on this. Uh, but yeah, so when we think of the First World War, and it's important to remember this, you know, the image that comes to our mind is the conflict that took place on the Western Front. And of course, uh, it's always important to, uh, you know, uh, make a note that that was not the only theater of war and they're not the only significant theater of war. Uh, you had like major wars of maneuver taking place in Eastern Europe, on, uh, in Russia, in the Middle East. You had the naval war, you had, uh, you know, you had conflicts in Africa and so on and so forth. But the image, obviously, that sticks into our mind is this Western Front, which was part, you know, a very critical part of the war. And uh, what happened basically was that you had uh, Germany uh, acting according to its, you know, war planning, uh, seeking to strike and knock out France very quickly from the war, you know, in a similar way to the way that they'd done in 1871 during the Franco-Prussian War. And so they sort of launched this rapid offensive and pushed very deep into France. And in fact, it mentions this in the kind of prologue to the, the, uh, to the movie that there is this very, the miracle uh, uh, at Man, where the, you know, the, the, the French and their British allies 
stop the German offensive just outside Paris and push them back. And very quickly, as we head towards the winter of 1914, you know, after the outbreak of the war uh, in, in the summer of 1914, this war of maneuver on the Western Front comes to an end. You know, you've had uh, all these technological changes and, you know, you know there are some sort of uh, precursors to this, uh, this type of warfare in the uh, Japanese-Russian war and in the Balkan wars. But, you know, armies weren't really used to all this new industrial technology. And very soon it became bogged down with, you know, uh, machine guns, uh, you know, being able to halt infantry and cavalry. And we end up with the two armies digging in and creating a trench system, which basically lasts until the final sort of phase of the war in 1917, 1918, when again, we return to the war of maneuver. But you're basically dealing with like militaries in Europe going through transformations as they kind of still have the sort of organizational structures and military doctrines of the 19th century, but they have the technology of the 20th century. And as you might imagine, those kind of military doctrines of the 19th century uh, placed in the context of military technology of the 20th century led to utter bloodshed and barbarism. And, you know, this is shown, you know, this happened to the British army, and this also happened to the French army. And, you know, this, this novel, I believe, is, is based, uh, the novel which the movie is based on, is based on a, a real case uh, where, you know, troops refused to take orders in 1915 to assault uh, a German fortified position. And, you know, there were perennial problems in the French and British military in 1917. In fact, there was a mass mutiny in the French uh, uh, military over the kind of uh, senseless violence that took place. You know, these, these like meaningless offensives where, where rank upon rank of infantry were sort of driven across no man's land for very little gain. And you had a kind of officer corps that uh, was still trying to play by the 19th century rules. And it wasn't until the end of the war, really, that we see, recognize that the armies had got used to the, this new technological context in which war was taking place, and they were able to return to a kind of war of maneuver. But for this, you know, three, four years in the middle of the war, you have this bloody senseless vi uh, violence uh, in which, uh, you know, people were sent to their deaths. And of course, then this is hinted to in, in, uh, in the movie, you know, people suffer major psychological uh, breakdowns. Uh, the British and the uh, French military would execute, execute people for having psychological breakdowns. Uh, the, the officer, you know, the general in the movie says there's no such thing as shell shock. You know, in the British military, there's a big sort of case a, uh, a few decades ago was, uh, you know, people coming to terms with the fact that the British Army had been executing people who had shell shock from or what we would call PTSD today. So, you, you know, can still, you still kind of in some ways see that a similar thing happening right now with uh, with CTE in, the, in, in like football and stuff, you know, like, um, like, like sports not really wanting to admit in, in a similar way that like, you know, the, the injuries that people get are like, you know, traumatic brain injuries so yeah basically to sum up this 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 movie is taking place at a, at a kind of stalemate on the western front where where we have this huge carnage and bloodshed and growing discontent within the rank and file of the military uh, about the way that the war is being prosecuted and the way that the generals 
uh, and the upper leadership of the military were seemingly throwing the lives of soldiers away for purely propaganda or political purposes rather than even having any real military utility. And that, and that kind of perfectly brings us to the plot of this movie because, you know, I, I think one of the major themes in this movie um, really is just who gets the blame, right? Like who gets, who gets the blame for, for the stalemate? Who gets the blame for outdated war techniques? And, you know, you have generals sitting, um, Maru and uh, Brulard. you know, Brulard obviously is, is the top general who's directly uh, in contact with, with the French government and who more than anyone else gets, um, you know, gets raked through the press and, and, and by politicians. Uh, but then, you know, un like right underneath him, you have General Maru. And, you know, as the pressures of, of uh, French society get, you know, like worse on them to somehow advance this, this cause that they're really not prepared to advance, um, the, you know, they start like demanding, uh, they start demanding these, these, uh, you know, these, these missions or these goals that are unachievable, like, you know, literally taking the anthill, which is something that they've been trying to do in this movie for months and haven't been able to do, but like, you know, now they demand it by Friday. Like, <laughs> so as that, so as that kind of thing happens and, and the goals are really, um, unachievable or like I impossible for any military, let alone one that's unprepared for this style of warfare, um, the, the blame just keeps getting passed down further and further until really, you know, the court martial is a spectacle. Like they're, they're trying to show like, oh, well, you know, it's not that we are having issues. It's that these soldiers have extreme amounts of cowardice and, and uh, it, it's their fault. So it's really, it's kind of a game to see how far down they can push that blame. Yeah. I think uh, you saw a lot of that during the, uh, the Bush administration too, whenever uh, we first went into uh, Afghanistan in Iraq and there were, you know, failure after failure. Uh, you know, you don't fight with the army you want, you fight with the army that you have, um, you know, uh, RIP King. No, um, <laughs> but, but, but uh, uh, the, the, you know, like, like you can, you can actually see like uh, th there's a continuation of that because like, you know, Vietnam was also a kind of a failure in strategy, which that you know, obviously has not happened yet um, in their timeline. Uh, you know, when this movie was made, but like, you know, Vietnam was trying to move away from the whole concept of trench warfare with the, with the um, infantry being helicopters. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, really a, a big version of this is like the My Lai massacre and uh, you know, like, Oh, it's individual, it's individual soldiers and individual, you know, units that have gone insane and started massacring people. And it's not the army, you know, um, the U S military, like having a, an impossible goal in a war where they're just hyping people up to like absolutely murder people. Like it can't be that it has to be like these individual psychopathic soldiers have just, you know, gone out of their minds. So this is, this is where, um, you know, the war, war is a racket, uh, left flank. That's kind of, this is all we talk about. Um, not all we talk about, we talk about a lot. Uh, but also this shit is like when the general's walking around, general Moreau's walking around the trenches and, and you, you said it, that he was talking about shell shock, uh, that shit's real. Like when a when a general's saying shell shock's not real, they treat PTSD in the military and trauma the exact same way in 2021 that they did in 1950 or 1915. Right? This is a thing. There's a culture built within the military to prevent you from reporting things or talk about your your uh, things that are going on in your mind. And if you do, you're a coward. You're a pussy. Uh, you know, you're you're belittled because the people around you have the idea that uh, you can't. You know, you just got to suck it up. You know, we still have that that problem in the U.S. military uh, when it comes to when it comes to like blame. You know, we're talking about like the general, right? 
uh, this shit happens all the time. Eli is a great example. I thought about that when I was watching this. I'm like, one person went down from Eli. Yeah. And that's it. One and even, person. And even, that, and even that one person kind of tried to pass the blame mm -hmm. elsewhere during those hearings. And, you know, they weren't having it because the military bureaucracy is so fixed that they're like, no, like, someone's got to go down and it's going to be the lowest person we can find. Like, the lowest I'm, ranking. I mean, Highway of Death in 1991, uh, uh, fucking... The things uh Fulujah, what happened in Fulujah using uranium rounds and um you know the what lasting so effect. So, so yeah, and something like we are like my partner and I talk about these movies and like I wish we talked about the people who had been suffering because of this war around it, not necessarily humanizing the soldiers, but humanizing the people who happen to be stuck in these situations. But with Paths of Glory, it does a really good job of just like sticking to the point and like you know, getting through the trial and 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 talking about this. But you know, and I think of like Wells Fargo. Who did they blame for their $9 billion fine that they had to pay for the government? They blamed the frontline workers. They blamed the tellers. They didn't, and the local low level managers. They don't blame the people at the top. Never. And we have this problem still where people at the top making the decisions for war, right? War, war's a racket. We're fighting oil wars and poppy wars and whatever else you want to do in South America, lithium wars, water wars soon to soon coming to a country near you. Near, near you. Uh, it's something that we're going to have. We're going to be watching, and it's never going to change, right? And Unless the Shabani we change war that, uh, that 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 Kamala Harris is going to bring to uh, to the Northern Triangle. I, I'm looking. I'm not looking forward to that. But I really appreciate. I really appreciate the the point uh, you were making. That um, you know, one of the problems with the anti-war movies, even, is that they focus on the soldiers rather than the people who are the victims of the soldiers. But I still, you know, I still think this movie. It, it is a good movie, and I think it it feels very modern in the sense that it talks about the military bureaucracy, and the military bureaucracy that exists today is far greater than you know uh, existed in the uh, First World War. Uh, it is a huge apparatus, especially in the United States, and coupled with you know what we see in the uh, the the. Uh, the movie is there's no there's like not real accountability within uh, the bureaucracy, and when someone high ranking is held accountable, it is viewed purely within a bureaucratic and political maneuvering amongst the upper echelons of, of the military bureaucracy, rather than any principled stand. And I think this 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 feels very modern because you know we have this uh, this problem, particularly in the United States where it is coupled with a culture of elite impunity, which, which you know, there's elite impunity in all, you know, major developed countries. But in the United States, it is a particularly pernicious uh, thing where if you are at the top of an organization, you can, you can basically get away with everything. But if you're low down in society, once you get to a certain level, you, you, you get the full weight of uh, the administration uh, thrown at you, at the justice system thrown at you, as you mentioned, Wells Fargo and things like that. And we, it feels this book, uh, movie feels relevant because uh, what we're seeing is, you know, a uh, people on the front line, soldiers on the literal front line, who followed orders or did nothing unreasonable, being blamed for major problems uh, taking place. You know, because of military policy, because of the political uh, the political nature of the military in the United States, you know, there's this notion that the American military is apolitical, which is uh, uh, the American military has a strong sort of 
uh, tradition of non-direct intervention into civilian government, but that doesn't mean it's apolitical. That, that yeah. means it's oper it works within a different, you know, it's not the Egyptian military for sure, but that doesn't mean that there isn't that, that there isn't politics going on. And if we and, and it feels very relevant because you know you look at a place like Afghanistan, where, which is basically Afghanistan was the anthill for for the United States, where where yeah. Am Americans were told you've got to build a nation. Uh, and there was no way that was a realistic uh, task, even within the kind of framework uh, of, of um, you know, like American policymaking, you know, even if we take them on their word that they want to bring democracy, it was a completely unreasonable goal driven by political considerations, which is the kind of reason that the anthill is assaulted or it's implied that's the reason the ant hell is being assaulted is because of these political considerations mm -hmm. that the the general staff are are, are, are are taking into account and one final point because i'm going on a lot is i think one thing that that movie gets across is the futility and i would actually say that many of these were you know another reason this movie seems quite uh, uh meaningful today is because many of these wars are not even resource wars, right? Afghanistan was not a resource war. Even Iraq was not really a resource war in the way that people think it was. It was a way uh, for the military bureaucracy to kick open the US treasury because all these oil contracts in Iraq are going to non-American companies. Or if you go to Afghanistan, there's no meaningful economic. So it's, 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 even, it's kind of even more perverse because it's, these wars are completely futile uh, they, uh, their only purpose is for the military establishment to sustain itself and keep itself relevant. And the anthill seems to be kind of like the model for that, you know, because at least, you know, if they're looting a country's resources, at least it makes sense. But but this doesn't even make sense from any sort of national perspective, you know, even a kind of doggy dog one. It's purely the military apparatus seeking to just, you know, suck in and expropriate more resources from its own people and the people being killed are the collateral damage of that attempt to loot the American public and the American treasury. Yeah, and I think it's and I think it's interesting that this movie takes place in the context of um, the French military, but then they they make sure that the people you know all of the actors keep their American and, and British accents. Like it's clearly not about the French military. It's clearly I just love that one French accent that guy had. <laughs> Really no, it's, good. it's clearly a movie you know i mean being filmed during the cold war where you couldn't really make a and you know an anti-cold war movie but because it's the french military that they're kind of uh having making this into an allegory about like you know although everyone doesn't really seem that french despite their names like you know um i i think that uh it it really it does a good job it does a good job uh make like bringing home that message without um with, without directly indicting, uh, you know, the Cold War administration, which I think was the purpose of it. But, but, but also, you know, I think it's uh, one really interesting part is, and and this really goes into like a, a French, I think like a French European tradition of, you know, like like the French uh, goal of liberty. The Colonel Dax, um, the character played by Kirk Douglas, is like almost like like an Atticus Finch character. You know, like he, he's a lawyer that like really does believe in in. in in law and like men and you know and, and and the um you know like really like really does believe in in like his own men and like wants to make sure that they're safe and really believes in law and wants there to be a fair trial and really believes in those ideals and the military establishment 
is completely unable to like e like even process that that would be a thing. Like in the end, when he's offered General Moreau's job, like the the general's like, well, I did everything you asked. Like you know, like I prosecuted the person that you know that you wanted me to prosecute. I you know I I made sure that like that this was handled well. Like I let you be the lawyer on it. Like like what have I done wrong? And this this idealistic vision of um like French values and and the, and the values of liberty and equality and like. Are in, in this in this military context are just non-existent but you know there is like it, it is like an idealistic uh ballad to those uh views anyway what's up barn nothing much you th um i was thinking about that point do you think that uh is why it was so influential on someone like david uh david simon um and it's also interesting because of kubrick's pictures this is one of the few movies that has a truly uncyn one uncynical character mm -hmm. um where if you look at his later movies there are no uncynical characters and there's so, a there's a there's a there's a cynical reason for that i think um which i you know is that kirk douglas produced the movie yeah and, and every so so like there were going to it was going to be a lot more i think kubrick-esque i'll call it and kirk douglas was like no i want to make a liberal like like 50 social picture where like you know social issues were brought to the front and really fought tooth and nail against uh against against kubrick for that to happen which is an interesting um yeah considering that kubrick was more libertarian and like douglas is just like big hollywood liberal well I, I think that i think kubrick was just more cynical like you know like all of his all of his i don't think that there's even necessarily a political ideology behind it it's just he thinks war is stupid and he wants to turn it into a farce in all of these movies. And I think that he thinks uh, bureaucracy is stupid. He thinks, you know, like, like the establishment is, you know, is, is always going to be corrupt. And he's making those points throughout all of his work. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that Kirk Douglas wanted to handle it more seriously instead of being like satirical about it. I, I think if you were to compare this to other cubic movies, like there's two comparisons that are both illuminating. One is uh, Barry Lyndon because it deals with, with um the the class dynamic the officer versus non-officer class and it's parallels to other classes in society explicitly but in that movie there's no michael douglas figure i mean the kirk douglas figure um there's it it there it's pure cynicism and where where his libertarianism may shine out a little bit is that while kubrick does kind of favor the little guy slightly more than the big guy the last scene of the film is also damning to them too um because the last scene of the film is an act of is, is an act of very subtle cruelty um, well, i think too the last scene is very much like that david simon uh thing you brought up because uh and you know sorry for our viewers who haven't seen the wire uh, i'm going to spoil the fuck out of the ending but um you know like like uh, the end of the uh, this movie kind of showed you how like people you know like society creates uh, roles for us to fill and, and you know certain ways like 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 nature abhors a vacuum which is why you know animals have like similar uh, evolutions even though they're they're like not related at all uh, th throughout geology or whatever but you also have a bit of that with um uh uh with uh with the wire and I think to a lesser degree this movie where, where um you know, people have different voids to, to kind of fill in where, where, um, you know, like, you know, Omar gets killed and that, that kid that we followed through, uh, high school, you know, becomes the new Omar at the end of the wire. Yeah. Or, uh, well, all the gets kicked out of the, uh, the police force. But this other guy who, who was not cynical and jaded like McNulty 
ends up becoming cynical and jaded like McNulty mm -hmm. and basically kind of becomes the new McNulty. Um, and they're not the same character, but they, they kind of fill that kind of void that, that was, uh, that was once left. And, and um, you kind of get a certain sense of that. Like, you know, these, these people are kind of, you know, the, the uh, filling that, that, uh, uh, that void as, as like, uh, the leadership changes, um, you know, uh, and whatnot. But uh, to, to a lesser degree, I, I was kind of thinking a bit about that, uh, although I did not read the, uh, uh, the, the, the article that was sent out. So, Wait, I, uh, so I have, so I have uh, David Simon uh, talking about mm -hmm. it in his own words, um, how, how this movie inspired him. So this would be probably a good time to play that. These institutions exist because we need them, because they uh, approximate human goals that we have to have. Certain labors have to get done in our society. It's how they exist and on what terms and what individual recourse there is that determines whether or not you're living in a, um, in a republic or a tyranny or, or whether or not there's regard for human rights or not. It's stuck in my mind that wherever you go, there you are. If you took what Kubrick had accomplished and what Humphrey Cobb was writing about in the novel, and you applied it across society almost at any given point where there's a large institution and it's being run without oversight or, or without sufficient oversight, this is what you get. This is what you get. You, you usually get an institution that is self-preserving and self-sustaining where the people at higher ranks maneuver for greater reward than the people lower in the pyramid. And what you clearly see from the first scene when French generals played by Adolf Manjou and, and George McCready, brilliantly played, maneuvering through personal ambition, right past the most basic concern about whether or not they're trading lives for actual value. George, I am responsible for the lives of 8,000 men. What is my ambition against that? By the time that scene concludes, it's clear that McCready's general is willing to trade in the lives of all of his men for even the possibility of a promotion. And it's clear that Manju's chief of staff knows this when he's making the offer. The life of one of those soldiers means more to me than all the stars and decorations and honors in France. So, you think this attack is absolutely beyond the ability of your men at this time? I didn't say that, George. Of course, this was based on a true story, the Corporals of uh, Suan uh, in 1916, in which the French army executed four corporals as an example to the others, in the same way that the Romans decimated legions when they failed to accomplish an objective. Humphrey Cobb was determined to rip the heroism out of war. He was, I think, in that way, much more aggressive and much more clear-eyed about what his mission was when he was writing, you know, what, what he truly believed was an anti-war novel. He thought every time you set out to make an anti-war film, it ends up being a war film. I'm not sure he's wrong. I mean, there's very few films that actually manage to stay within the pocket of souring you on war. The suffering is so heroic. The characters are so vibrant. And, and let's say, hey, say the, when you're living life at the end of a spear, everything matters so intensely. It's so dramatic. You know, all the Marines I knew from doing Generation Kill, they all love to do the dialogue from Full Metal Jacket. There's something about the camaraderie of war that undercuts every anti-war message. And uh, not this film. Get these men out of here! Not Pads of Glory, and maybe because it's not strictly an anti-war film, it's an anti-authority film. This is really a, a movie about chain of command. 
And there's a chain of command in civilian life, and there's a chain of command in every institution. There's a chain of command in politics. I don't think you get much by looking at the top. You know, if you follow a president, you get uh, aspects that are presidential. If you follow a king, you get royalty. In this case, you have a colonel who is middle management. Gentlemen of the court, there are times when I'm ashamed to be a member of the human race, and this is one such occasion. With middle management as your point of view, you can look up and you can look down. And therein lies a political crux that, you know, he's able to tell a story about how power routes itself all the way down from the top to the individual. The case made against these men is a mockery of all human justice. Gentlemen of the court, to find these men guilty will be a crime to haunt each of you to the day you die. With everything I've done, my heart is really with either middle management or labor, but I'm always attending to how power routes itself through systems. And so I, I took that to heart. I was trying to structure a television show on HBO called The Wire. I remember rewatching, you know, with a notepad in front of me and saying, you know, how did he do this? And, you know, what are, what are the elements here that I'm trying to capture? And I think that The Wire has a lot of similarities to this movie because, you know, it, it follows these bureaucracies that are sprawling and that really, you know, are, are just self-replicating. Like, I, I don't think that there's really any place for, you know, um, reforming minds in, in, in these bureaucracies, at least not in the, in the middle management sense. Like, nothing Colonel Dax does throughout the entire movie. And David Simon says this later. It's just like a long interview that he did for Criterion Channel, so I didn't want to play all of it. But he says, like, you know, nothing Colonel Dax does actually really succeeds throughout the movie. Like, the only thing he actually succeeds in is, um, you know, I mean, obviously possibly promoting himself, but, like, the only thing he really succeeds in is, like, one of his goals is giving them an extra five minutes to listen to the German singer um, at the end. Like, he, he has... It's Kubrick's life. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's where I actually had that kind of that issue with it, right? In that sense of it's a very good movie from 1958. It represents a, a very important time. And on top of that, the story that it was based off, like two hours, I think I read after the execution... The high command said, <clears throat> came down and said, hey, we're actually going to just do a labor camp, but they had already killed him. So it's kind of like, that's really shitty. But, it, you know, I wish more of that was conveyed. And I, I kind of wish Colonel Dax walked out or, like, been imprisoned or been arrested so that way he, like, you know, stood up. I mean, Dax, from the very beginning, sh uh, puts down nationalism, like, France is depending on you. Patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel is probably my favorite quote from the movie is that. Uh, because, I mean, it's true. That's that's how we use it. You know, your country needs you. Fight for the Germany. Fight for the fatherland, you know, in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. These kids are high school kids. They're they're told by their teacher they need to join the war and fight for the fatherland kind of thing. Um, yep. And so we see that and it's portrayed, but Dax still stays in. And this is where the bureaucracy of the system comes in, right? This is where there's no mutiny of the people at the top who are, who are fighting that general. General was never held accountable. Three people have just been killed. Like, because, and they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's, and, I mean, and, the, and the little bit of accountability for, you know, the second in command general, uh, I think Maru is his name, is, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's incidental accountability. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so at the end of it, like, he's probably going to get a hearing and he's not, he's not going to be executed. Like, I doubt that. He's probably going to be out of army command, but that's incidental. Like, if that hadn't been brought to, you know, anyone's attention and if kind of Colonel Dax wasn't, um, you know, if, if Colonel Dax wasn't, uh, 
you know, kind of blackmailing the top general. Like nobody would have given a fuck that he opened up his own positions and like. And yeah. about how systems replicate, you could see that with uh, the lieutenant who uh, led um, uh, Meeker and, and the other guy into the uh, into no man's land for the spy. Uh, you know, as a as a fuel mission failed, lied about it, killed a guy, and um, uh, he, well, he was the coward. He was he was the the person who actually you know <clears throat> um, you know everybody was accused of cowardice and then pushed down the the blame. He was kind of the one character that literally was a coward um when when he killed his own his own person it is in, it is interesting that the the punishment for that is just my, the minor accountability of having to be part of the people doing the execution and thus having to live with the actual guilt of what you did mm-hmm. and thus having to feel it but that's all they can really do is yeah. just directly implicate to himself in a way that no one other than Dax and he will know that he had to kill an innocent man and he has to look at it for what it is as opposed to deflect it. And that's, that's a pretty serious punishment for him in some ways, but it's also like, it's also nothing yeah. like, cause if no, he'd actually been a sociopath, it wouldn't have done anything. Like, yeah. And you know, and, and it's, I mean, it's interesting that that's all Colonel Dax can really do. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like that, like losing, like losing a battle or not gaining ground is something that needs to be severely punished. Uh, literally killing someone in your own, you know, like like in your own uh, group, I guess that that you went out on a scouting mission with doesn't have a, a punishment in the same way. I, I think it does a very good job too with uh, the officer enlisted uh, difference. You know, after mm-hmm. they get back from that night raid, uh, and the lieutenants, you know, the corporals, like you killed that guy. You know, you killed him. Um, and then it's like, oh, it's now a lieutenant's word versus a private. Never gonna yeah. happen, right? I, on my ship in the Navy, uh, the XO, who's second in command, was sleeping with a junior enlisted sailor. Uh, you know, that's very—it's fr- it's fraternization. It's all the all bad things you're not supposed to do. The the XO ended up getting flown off the ship, and got a shore duty, and played golf for the rest of his career. Was able to retire just fine. Uh, the E5 busted down. Uh, Forty-five days restricted duty, not allowed to leave the ship. Uh, awards taken away, no, like just you know, your career is pretty much over at that point. Um, and this shows that very well. Of this is what happens no officers are ever going to be held accountable, it's always going to be enlisted. Look at Eddie Gallagher, officer, Clint Lawrence, officer, they were the ones who ordered war crimes and they tried to take them down through the, the U.S. military bureaucracy, which fucking sucks. Uh, it doesn't hold people accountable, it may be bigger, but it's not much better than it was in the early 1900s um, because people like Eddie Gallagher are still walking the streets of San Diego after he brutally murdered a 13 year old kid, you know? And, and it's and like, I think because they, they use the, the French army rather than the U S army to tell this story you know, you know uh, the general can literally say, Oh, we're not going to get officers involved in this. Like this is, this is a matter that's going to be settled by literally sacrificing soldiers lives. <laughs> like he, I he, thought, I actually think that's a. That I know that that's part of the book. It's also part of the historical incidents uh, instance, but it's also one of the few places where I accuse this movie of minor cowardice, because um, in the case, if you if you know the historical context, in the case of the French or British military, you're also dealing with, um, well, not as much in the case of the French military, but there's still the vestiges of, of semi-feudal class relations that are directly tied into military ranks and, in fact, based off of it. Um, and one of the things I found interesting, and this happened a lot 
a lot during World War One. We talk about it in the context of Vietnam, but was that a lot of the officer relations, like when say the Russians would massacre their officer corps, um, which they did quite a lot in 1916-1917, they were also getting back at people who came from a stratified social class. In the case of France, it's a little weird because France has had a revolutionary Republican tradition that has theoretically gotten rid of the hierarchical social class, but it also had been reestablished three different times in the prior century. So it's still vestigially there. In the case of the United States, where it's where this becomes much more open, right? Is that the officer class, despite our Republican heritage and having no vestigial um, nobility tied into our officer corps in the same way, we are still structured in the exact same way as the other militaries. It is not any more egalitarian whatsoever. Um, and the officer distinction is still there. And it's in some ways even more arbitrary. I mean, because there's not, it's not family. It's just like, oh, well, you happen to have the right degree to come in as a CEO. I mean, you know, I, I've not I've not been military, but I used to teach at military academies. I've worked with the military a lot of my life and a lot of my family's been in the military. Um, and I just, I know that that officer enlisted distinction is huge, but it's also effectively arbitrary in a way that it kind of gets to with the corporal when they talk about like the, the corporal and the colonel, I think all coming from the same uh, the same school. Do they have yeah. the same educational background? I think it is implied that one of them has a slightly higher degree than the other, and that is why they came in. And it's just kind of just an arbitrary decision. But that decision automatically makes a, a massive distinction between those two people, even though they effectively even have the same background. Yeah. And if so it I was, think that's uh, why it's included. If it was Mike Hammer that was, uh, you know, instead of just Ralph Meeker playing that role, he would have been like, tell your lieutenant to shut up. Ask him who he is, Horace. Tell her to shut up. Shut up. Fatality. See, I, I have a, <laughs> now I have a hard time seeing seeing Ralph Meeker as anybody but Mike Hammer after that first episode. Oh, <laughs> but he was so good in both movies too. Yeah, like, you know, just He's a good just, actor. Just you know, yeah, no, I was, I was actually surprised like how good he was in this movie. Uh, after you know, I, you know, because 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 Crispy Deadly was not a great film as far as like you know the actual execution of it but but mm -hmm. but like it works in a very visceral level this is this is a work of art and, and ralph meeker you know was able to sit there and raise his game um and did not tell his lieutenant to shut up or have the colonel tell his lieutenant i think uh, i think uh angles makes a point about you know armies being a kind of reflection of the class relations that exist within a society just in a more intense form so, you know, I think, you know, obviously in Republican France and, uh, you know, in Britain and Russia, obviously you had aristocracy playing an important role in the military. And even today in Britain, you still have kind of the remnants of a certain aristocratic caste. But you also have people who are career military, whose papas was a military and things like that. I think that certainly exists in the United States as well. There's a whole load of like... Uh, 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 military families who come from officers and officers, uh, you know, like their granddad was an officer, their dad was an officer. You also have, for example, the provincial Midwestern bourgeoisie, uh, 
the kind of guys who who like to dress in camo, but they own like all the petrol station franchises in in, in, in Pig Tickle, Wyoming. They those kind of guys will send their their kids will join the National Guard as like little butterball uh, officers who are like using it to go on about how they're veterans. I know so many people who are officers, but what were they doing? You have like uh, people who are in the National Guard. Uh, who like they go to ROTC at provincial universities, go into the uh, you know going go go into the National Guard and then boss around people who have been in the warfare. Then you have all these people coming out of aristocratic kind of institutions like West Point and stuff like that, who 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 are like you know the, they're the equivalent of the Harvard grads of uh, the uh, Pete Buttigieg's of the world. The Pete Buttigieg's of the world. You have a bunch of people who go on about their military service when their entire job was being a buddy fucker and working <laughs> as a dad. No, it's true. And yeah, as like someone who's just been in, right? Like it is, it, you see that, right? And I think uh, Kubrick, and you know, kind of just taking it back to the movie and how I watched it. I'm not a movie buff. I love this shit. I love movies. Like I couldn't tell you anything about like lighting or any of that shit though. I'm just like, this was a good movie. I really enjoyed oh, yeah. it. I like, I like that's, the, uh, that's the aesthetic <laughs> we're going for with, with this show in general. I love it. No, I, but I with like this movie, movies, <laughs> like it said France, right? Like we all know this is the French army versus the German front. Uh, but in the Western front, but also even in the film, I felt like because they didn't try hard to do the accents, they didn't try hard to like, other than a few French names, they were pretty, you know, trying to make it universal. That's how I felt Kubrick's doing it because yeah, even I, in the court scene, he did say the code of military justice, not which we do have, we have the uniform code at UCMJ and the U S military. Uh, so when they said that, you know, they could have said the French uniform code of military justice, but he said the code of justice, right? And so I, when I, I heard that, further. I was like, this is universal to me. I, I'd go farther than that. I would say that it, he's indicting the U.S. military at a time when I don't think you can indict the U.S. military. So there, so instead, he's going after the French military in mm -hmm. a war that we hadn't entered yet. And that's I think that's why very purposely they didn't hire French. The only person that has the accent that they should have in the entire movie is uh, Kubrick's. Like, you know, they got married during the filming of this movie. But, like, you know, Kubrick's wife is German and has a German, you know, accent when she's singing in German. That's the only time you actually see the person's, uh, I guess, indigenous, the character's indigenous accent. I would, I would actually well, go... After the, this is in the aftermath of the Korean War, which people forget was a pretty unpopular war and cost the Democratic Party the presidency. So, you know, like, war is still, I think, on, on the mind, uh, you know, and the Korean War, like I said was not popular and people yeah. didn't like it. And, and and so this is definitely, you know, we, we Korea is often overshadowed by like the specter of Vietnam, but I think, you know, we really have to understand uh, the context of the Korean war in which this movie is being made. It's also, it's also overshadowed in the specter of the myths of, uh, of boomer and anti-war activism, because to be frank, even the Vietnam War was more supported by younger people than older people at the time because the older people remembered the Korean War. And this is a fact that has been washed out in boomer mythology. Like I could show you the statistics. It was recorded at the time. You wouldn't know that from the way we replay all the, the anti-Vietnam stuff. Um, it, we, we tend to pretend this historic, historical narrative about the new left, basically. And the new left was a very, very small fraction of that generation. Um, but the, I think the other thing we have to put this and contextualize up, not only is this right after the Korean War, Eisenhower is still president. You have a general as the president, and while he can say certain things about the military-industrial complex, you can't. Fatality. 
this is also code. If you go back and read code pictures, this if this had been said in the United States, it would have violated code. Yeah. Um, no, and, and the code was still yeah. going on for, for three years. Um, because this is 1957, the code kind of uh slowly got got you know taken away starting in 1960. So this is still at a time when the code was loosening, but it's not by any means gone. The the other thing I would say that, that indicates that this is an indictment of the U.S. military, it's not just that people are speaking with their natural accents. If you really listen, the working class French people have working class American accents that are regionally variant. The, the middle class um, uh, French people have middle class American accents that are standard Hollywood fare, and the upper class have upper class British or American yeah. accents. Well, the, the, upper, the upper class kind of has the like the mid Atlantic uh, affectation right. that the upper class took on during this time period, at least in media, where it's like halfway between an American and a British accent. Which everybody is, talks like Nathan Robinson. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, but that's not even an authentically real accent. Like you know, it was I mean? invented like, for media. You had to go to like a, <laughs> like, a, like a certain kind of school. To be taught to speak like the same with the British accent, though. Like, the this is the heyday of British received pronunciation where nobody speaks like nobody spoke like that, really, anyway. So, like, this is an era in which people have like funny accents, uh, on, on media for technological reasons as well to like make mm -hmm. sure that like they're clear and concise. Uh, because you know, one thing that always strikes me about like, well, one thing that struck me watching this and there is a certain quality to movies made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where, you know, people are like, speak, people don't mumble as much as they do now. And the dialogue is, is in, on one hand, very, like, a little bit stilted, but on the other hand, it's quite powerful because it's very set piece in it rather than being uh, uh, natural. And I, and I thought, yeah, I thought the use of accents as a way to signify class divisions is, you know, we see this in, in everything, right? You you watch Game of Thrones and everybody everybody in the Lannisters speaks with an upper class British accent and everybody in the north speaks like someone from Yorkshire, right? So, you know, like this this is a tried and true uh, way of signaling class. Cause it'd be a bit weird if that, you know, all the uh, everybody in the trenches spoke like Shakespearean actors, right? Yeah. But it is interesting. Watch other fifties movies and see how rare it is for you to get a lot of non non caricaturized lower and middle class accents like you get it but it's characterized even a movie like on the waterfront which is about that all right um if you listen to it all the lower class accents are exaggerated and they're not in this movie but they're there so th this is this is movies interesting to me um from a technical perspective to go a little bit technical on us is because kubrick is presaging a lot of stuff that's going to come later um, as common movie stuff, but there's still parts where this movie very much like the ending scene is what you know, which is both an act of kindness and an act of cruelty simultaneously, right? Like if you think about the meaning of that, but it's also a very '50s feeling stage piece, except for the close up at the at the end on the crowd. Um, whereas that that tracking shot through the trenches is a modern shot.
I mentioned this on uh, Ben's show when everyone wow. talks about um, uh, about uh, Clockwork Orange. But uh, one of the the beauty uh, uh, that that uh, Kubrick does uh, with shots like this is uh, he creates a sense of symmetry, and symmetry usually creates a feeling of stability. But somehow, every single time he does something where where there's that stability, it is it is you know something really like like intense is building, and there isn't you know that that sense of of um, of stableness uh, that's going on. And once you know, and, and here you know. Uh, well, 15 years before Clockwork Orange, he's he's able to still, you know, he's he's able to like like master this um, uh, form of of like taking the symmetry and, and uh, making it feel uncomfortable. Really, at the beginning of his career, which is insane. Yeah, because well, he's got uh, a bunch of movies before this. Well, he's got a couple. <laughs> uh, he he started with the Killing, and that was only like a few years right. before this. Um, and That's also the uh, sound effects, I, I think. And yeah. Oh, yeah. The sound design of this is crazy. But, yeah, uh, really good sound effects as and far as the, like the walking, uh, the Douglas character, you know, walking and, and, the, and the explosions going on. And the, just the repeated, number one, the, the repeated explosions, both visually, whenever they're like having a conversation, it seems like it's going to be a relatively stable conversation and just an explosion goes off and completely disorients the, the conversation. That happens like at least a dozen times in the movie when they're in the trenches, especially like when... um. Because it's it's the class dynamics part of it is really interesting because the top general never goes into the trenches, doesn't see the trenches, right. doesn't mm -hmm. want to look at the court martial, doesn't want to like he's there for the execution, but like he he's not even like he's like he's not a hands on person. The bureaucracy is controlling a war that they're not even watching. Then of course yeah. you have the guy underneath him who's looking through binoculars, not actually putting his hands on the war. The one time he kind of walks through the trenches. And, and kind of awkwardly just asked, "Hello, soldier, ready to kill more Germans?" Like it's not—it's not an authentic interaction. It's like you know what I mean. He's—he's he's inspecting everything. That's an insane scene when he's just having a fucking party in like the you know like like literally the entire military is is continually in these trenches, and he's literally just having a party with all these French aristocrats, you know, which easily could double for American aristocrats, like. You know what I mean? Like, like in in his take, like in Kubrick's takedown of of how um, the military in any really society works. You know, he's literally just having a party, serving cognac uh, to his guests. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just getting drunk while this war is taking place, and and he's literally putting like, I don't know, like like thousands of soldiers' lives in the line. <laughs> but that's it's very much like a Donald Rumsfeld style character. Yeah. yeah. But even, I mean, in some ways, the, the aristocratic elements of it is interesting, but the aspirational elements of the middle tier of of lower of lower officers is interesting. You don't see it with Dax, but look at what liquor even that uh, that lieutenant's drinking. He's not just drunk, and he's not drinking cognac, but he's also not drinking beer or wine, which would be lower class al uh, alcohols. Yeah. Um, He's drinking like some kind of aspartame. It looks probably like some kind of Amaro or something. So like he and that's that's actually an aspirational class signal. Like he's he's and it's it's actually interesting because it's not something I think Americans would have caught, but the European audience would have. Um, well, so, also also when uh, when Meeker's about to die and he says, "Do you have a drink for me?" and you know the the officer above him gives him like that. He has like that giant flask that he's like, "Take a sip of this." Like he's clearly like give it like it's not something that Meeker would necessarily have access to. I mean, not well, 
either. But, but like that officer, that, that officer I thought was an enlisted officer as a no, sergeant. Sergeant. officer. Yeah, yeah. So so but so you he has he has wine again yeah. as opposed to um, some kind of like bougie low low alcohol liquor. Um, Benedictines. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's one of those things that. The enlisted officer has access to alcohol, but even then, it's just a big, like, uh, basically a big thing of wine. Th there's a bunch of different class implications in all of that which that I think us, is which very us, interesting. Uh, uh, you know, less less European sophisticated uh, watchers would be like, "Wow, he's drinking, he's drinking the good wine." But <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, just, also, uh, just a little tidbit. Uh, NCO, it's a non-commissioned officer. It's just an E5. It's still enlisted. It's not an enlisted officer. But yeah, I'm here to educate everyone on how military ranks work. Uh, that's, but why, yeah, that's, I why was brought, that's why I brought but, you on to this. To this yeah, <laughs> so I mean, we can talk about the poverty draft. We can talk about... Well, I, I just well, I do want to talk about how some of the scenes that I, I just saw Apocalypse Now. Again, I watch it probably once a year. I fucking love that movie. But I could see Coppola pulled some of those scenes so when we were watching that trench. I was like really reminded of that scene on the beach after the... Uh, the Calvary, Calvary landing when they're playing Wagner, flight of the Valkyries, then land on the beach and the the colonel is walking by with his shirt off and all this artillery flying and then sends someone out surfing and yeah. all these people are like ducking and he's just not even nothing right, no reaction, just so used to it. And and similar and similar to that, I think is um, Miro deciding to shell like shell his own, uh, you know what I mean, his his own forces and. Honestly, I think that's the most amazing because I, I did a cut on, on Twitter where I took the two scenes that I had the movie downloaded. And the first one is obviously him doing the, the super insincere, like, what is what is a promotion compared to the lives of one of my men? Like that whole grandstanding speech, which obviously is how um which is how the the, the other general takes uh you know takes Kirk Douglas's like Dax's grand like mm -hmm. grandstanding, but obviously that's legitimate because he really does feel like this weird like this this French uh liberty tradition where he wants to defend like the, the lives and the law of his, of his men like so but that whole grandstanding speech where he's like what what is a promotion what are honors what are stars compared to the lives of my men and then like you know because it's obviously like not that long a movie like two, like 15 minutes later he's like all right shell the trenches my men come first of all george and those men know it too because i know that they do you see george those men know that i would never let them down that goes without saying. The life of one of those soldiers means more to me than all the stars and decorations and honors in France. Fifteen minutes later. Order the 75s to commence firing on our own positions. Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir, but I respectfully ask the Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir. Then carry it out, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's interesting to me how much the uh, French military probably does operate like the U.S. military because I was actually trying to think about that when I was watching the movie. Um, it's it's uh, because I, I was actually like one of the things I was interesting in. There's so much social class status in the uniforms that we don't. That this is one thing that is different. When Moreau goes into the trenches, he's wearing a capelet that is associated with like aristocracy. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I was like in the U S military, does anybody get to wear a capelet even in 
in 19 and 1914 uh, <laughs> i don't think so actually so like that was that was actually the one of the things that reminded me oh this is about france like but yeah. it's well, I, I think it's i think it's starkly portraying the fact that his his experience in war is unconnected like completely disconnected from like the average soldier's experience in war like his experience in war is walking through and and they they do tracking shots kind of in both of those scenarios and his tracking shot with like his like his lackey that later plays the prosecutor uh behind him is incredibly awkward oh there soldier ready to kill more germans yes sir what's your name soldier sir private for all company a uh-huh you married private no sir well i'll bet your mother's proud of you yes sir you know, because he's just getting, like, smoke blown up his ass by everybody else around <laughs> him. And the whole thing is like, hello, soldier. Are you ready to kill some Germans? And then the soldier, like, has to answer, and he expects, like, a sunny answer. But at the end, the guy's like, the guy's like, wow, you really boosted the, the morale of these troops. Yeah. Despite the fact that he just denied that shell shock exists. Like, it's so it's completely disconnected from the lives of everybody on the ground. And I felt like his dress when he's walking through the trenches, like, this experience where he's basically slumming it. Um, it really, really uh, emphasizes that. Yeah, and we do. Uh, officers do have capelets in the U.S. military. They do. It's, okay. it's it's it's, yes. it's they have their special dress uniforms that they show off and wear on special occasions that look like that. They look like fucking nineteenth century uh, aristocrats. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't know. I, it's, it's like it's like it's how I knew that. Guys, I don't know why we're talking bad about capelets. I think we should bring the that, No, it's fine. Uh, but make everyone have capelets, right? Yeah. Yeah. But let's give that's everyone a capelet. Oh, everyone where, gets a capelet. My politics aren't no capelets. My politics are capelets abolish, abolish class no and, make, and make capelets much more accessible. The average, the average. Yeah, it's like it, it's it's wild though because you know we would have our admirals or uh, in some cases generals of certain theaters would come onto the ship or come in and talk to us because we had marines on board as well. Uh, so like they would come on and it you know we didn't have access. It was stand at the side. They were to talk to you. You don't talk back. You don't say anything back. Uh, the person who does say something back, like that guy, was like, you know, I'm shell shocked. He didn't say it, but he kept repeating the question kind of thing. Yeah, where he's clearly something going on. Uh, and I thought you know, that, that, that if that were to happen, you would be was, in uh, trouble. Like you would absolutely be in trouble in the military if you did that to a fucking admiral or a, a general. I thought that was uh, played, I thought that was played really well in this specific movie because you know shell shock is so clearly overwhelming to him. But like it's kind of I don't want to say it's played satirically, but like it's played I guess humorously enough that you feel kind of disconnected from it. What like, I, you know, like you don't feel. Like you feel like you feel like it's obviously horrific, right. but you're not like I don't know. Like it's 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 played enough that that you kind of feel distance to understand. Uh, you, you know, you understand the the two dynamics, which are this general not even wanting to admit that shell shock exists as a concept, despite the fact that it obviously fucking does when you're living for years in a trench, like in the ground, and and constantly getting the shelling. And during the movie, you kind of almost. I'm not saying you get a taste of it, but like you kind of like every conversation in this movie when they're in the trenches is, is like disorientating. Like, I, I think one thing I would say about this is that the, the Moreau being in the trenches itself, even in dress uniform, do, did feel to me as one of the the breaches of the realism of the movie. Because I'm like, I don't think a, a uh, an officer of that high rank would have risked the trenches or even been allowed to, because if we lose an off, you know, such a high ranking <laughs> officer, we're obviously down i mean i could be wrong about that but i i 
I've never heard of something like that. Correct modernly. me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But if I remember my history correctly, um, the beginning of the trench warfare, people would uh, actually have like like their ins you know rank and insignia and everything on their helmets too. Yeah. And so the snipers would be looking out for that, take them out, and they quickly stopped doing that. So so um, it did happen, just maybe not this part of the war. Well, uh, it, depends, yeah. it depends where you were in the trench networks. It's always important yeah. to remember there's like trench networks that were quite like deep, uh, you know, fortifications. So, you know, you could lurk around at the back of the trench, uh, the trenches. And so long as nobody fired a, uh, an artillery piece at you, you'd be fine. Well, but, I, I, but the, the, the complicatedness of that, though, is they're specifically at an unwinnable part. <laughs> Of the twinch of the trenches, and they're on the front line trenches to do it. Like that's actually crucial to the movie and, about why they're taking the anthill. And so, at the crux, and at the crux of the stalemate, that was you know uh, like a real like a real phase of the war, I guess. Um, you know what I, mean? like, <laughs> I feel like it's, it cinematically <laughs> works, but it doesn't. I don't. I actually don't think it historically works. And I'm, I know that like I might be wrong about that. I'm willing to be. Like, I'm not as like I said. Like my my interaction with the military is like. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's, who was, uh, um, who became a sergeant and that's, and then I have, you know, I've known people who, who were officers and I also would like laugh at the fact that like, we still give officers stuff like ceremonial swords and stuff, which is hilarious yeah. to me, but, well, um, we're, we're an aspirant. <laughs> we've never gotten out of the phase, but we're an aspirant, uh, imperial power. Like, well, it's yeah. not just the aspirant imperial powers. The military is where we don't hide the fact mm -hmm. that this is modeled on feudalism. Like, even we from, like, the bourgeois Republican. Yeah. We're not even trying to hide it in the military. We don't hide it at all. Like, yeah. you know, here's your well, ceremonial I'm, I'm sword that's completely useless. When, like, when you when when you say that, uh, when you say that, oh, like, it's, it's interesting how similar, like, or, or universal these experiences are like it, the the reason I feel like is because during World War One and World War Two we kind of took our cues from the French and British military. Like I don't think we've ever really gotten away from that. We've never really. Gotten I, away I would from actually. That. I, I think military historians would disagree with you about that because a lot of our military culture was developed during the Civil War, um, but it was explicitly developed on uh, feudal guidelines because they thought it had to be. I think what uh, uh, an interesting text that I've read for other reasons is actually James Burnham's second book, The Modern Machiavellians, only because of the end. And this is a conservative guy came up with the managerial thesis, but his 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 uh, image of what American management should look like is not college educated elites in the way we think about them. It's military officers. In fact, he thinks that like he basically thinks he projects the Eisenhower administration as the future of the United States in perpetuity, um, which is kind of hilariously wrong. But like that, that is who he thought the management was going to be was middle management generals and whatnot. And they were going to dominate us society. Um, interestingly enough, I think one of the, one of the things that we can kind of see in the military versus the bourgeois um, is that, despite both were totally dependent on imperialism and, and like, frankly, they're both the military, the military's functioning capital, frankly, is part of why they didn't do anything for that Trump wanted them to do in the last year, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, as I don't think it has anything to do with like Liberty or any horse shit like that. Um, <laughs> but the, the, uh, 
No, if if they had done what Trump, they, it would have been incredibly destabilizing the capital. Right. So, yeah. but but it's but it's interesting because the military structure it it's so it's so semi feudal that even the bourgeois kind of bristle under it, like because, um, like certain kinds of competition and stuff are are, are tamped down on, et cetera, and so forth. But it's that's where it shows up in our society, I think, the most. And and it is interesting because it is both an intensification of the class stratification that we already have, but it's also like this other older class stratification that we only allow to be obvious in this one case. Mm -hmm. Um I guess I guess when I was making the case that we kind of copy uh European imperial powers, it's less in how our military actually operates and more in kind of the theatrical like the theatrical and ceremonial aspects of it i don't think we've ever gotten around being a a an aspiring um an aspiring imperialist power because i think that we kind of see european tradition as something like to emulate but there's, that's not true. One, there's not one european tradition as well like military practices across the european continent are quite you know are, are divergent and of course there's been an enormous amount of cross-pollination like country like japan based its land forces doctrines on, on, on imperial Germany, whereas they, oh, yeah. they naval doctrine uh, and organization on, on the United Kingdom. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think in the 19th century, we had these kind, this kind of formation of what is conceptualized as like a modern military. And at various points in the 19th century, different countries became the model for best practice. And particularly towards the late 19th century, it was the Prussian model of military organization that became uh, the kind of like gold standard of, of, of uh, military, uh, you know, military methodology and, and organization. But this actually, again, to be historical, I mean, again, I don't mean to be the history pedant here, um, but uh, maybe <laughs> yeah, I will I expected, be. I expected Gene to be the history pedant here. Um, uh, <laughs> is they, they that... both the history pedant. <laughs> yeah. um, well, he's got a PhD nerds. in it. Um, but I have a PhD the, in Oriental studies. So that's true. You know, that's true. And um, I'm an Orientalist. And I'm not. I'm not a military ones. anything. As I don't. I don't think you can say that anymore. It's not PC. Uh, but but the big point about France is in 1916 they had just started adopting that that Prussian model. In the war, France had the worst casualties in World War One because they were still trying to run their like Napoleonic cavalry into into trench and cannon fire as late as 1915. Like they would not drop their old structures of the military, and theirs was actually particularly anachronistic. But they held on to it because it had worked for a hundred years. Like it it well, yeah, almost took over all of Europe. They got their asses kicked in 1871, though, because the Franco-Prussian War proved disastrous. Where the sort of semi-literate, the French mid early to mid 19th century French sort of semi-literate peasant conscript army, which was like really good in like 1812, was just didn't function as well as the kind of like professionalized. Uh, uh, German German system in which basically in the German uh, in the German monarchy the Junker class were kind of integrated heavily into mm -hmm. the officer corps and you know and we see that model exported to a place like Imperial Japan where samurais uh, you know that they're, they're given a kind of new lease of life uh, in the by being incorporated into the Imperial military as well so you know yeah the French model was certainly not super uh, effective in, in terms of 
you know, there was and there was a lot of push for military modernization. But they so, resisted but yeah, it until the middle of World War One. I. I mean, that's that's sort of the that's sort of the the thing about why their casualties were even higher than the British is, is they would just send horses at camp, at at modern tanks. I mean, it was kind of. Insane. I mean, we would just we just took hills and gave them up in Vietnam every week. Like this, we'd take a hill and we'd leave it, and the Viet Cong would come back in and take yeah. that hill again. It was like every single day. We just did the same shit France did twenty years earlier in Vietnam. So it really, it's like I don't know. I feel like it. There's no way to pinpoint what a single military does or does not do, or or say mm. where these things come from because military is military, guns are guns, planes are planes, ships are ships. They kill. They're only there to kill. And then the draft, it's the people, it's the patriotism, it's the the propaganda. I'm watching Tomorrow War right now. I'm still got like 45 minutes left. It's fucking awful. But uh, I suggest you check it out for military propaganda. Yay. Um, but yeah, it's like these things are happening every day in our you country. Want it once, right? once you do your stream on it, do you want to come back on and do a stream on it? Yeah, that? so we're going to do a stream probably this week uh, because we've all seen it now. So we're going to talk oh, about Tomorrow War's a racket. I'll, but I'll, I'll watch it next week, and then <laughs> all, all modern looks tough. Oh, yeah, all modern movies seem to be wall but propaganda. I do want to, I do want to, like, kind of tie that all in. Of just like this is, you know, the movie even talks about, you know, the press and the and the people are turning against us, right? This is the same thing that happens every time, right? We we support Iraq, Iraq, by fifty eight percent of the nation supported uh, invading Iraq in two thousand three, and people forget that. Right, a majority of the nation, and yet now it's one of the most unpopular things we did. Vietnam, as you was already been brought up, people supported Vietnam until 1968 in the Tet Offensive, when the ideas started going down and the pictures started coming out, and the hearts and minds were being lost. Um, and so this movie another, talks about it, another, and like these officers, these officers, these movie generals, I wanna, another movie I want to watch that and do a stream on is the the hearts and minds, like the that. Oh, that's a good one. The document, yeah, yeah it's fucking yeah. good. My dad took me to see that in theaters too, but like this. When we yes, I was born and raised in anti-war, but in poverty. So you know, there we go. Just kind of joined the navy so I'd avoid combat. See how that worked out. Uh, but it's one of those things that um, when we talk about it, it's like these officers, these generals that get out are on your fucking TV on CNN, pushing liberal neocon talking base, whether they're on, they're on Fox News or on CNN or in MSNBC. They're in their fucking uniforms or not, or there's a picture of them in an old uniform with all their stupid ass medals that they probably didn't fucking earn. And they got a lot of people killed for, uh, but or killed a lot of people, usually black and brown people for those medals. Um, like that's these people are on the media every single day talking about things like China and Cuba and like. Uh, the pullout of, of Afghanistan, how it's going to lead to Taliban. It was always going to fucking lead to Taliban. And guess what? We have CIA back zero squads still there. It's not like we're actually leaving. We're still backing independent private fighters in Afghanistan. It's not like we're actually leaving. We've never left. We've never left Africa. We never left uh, South South America. All these countries that we're discussing, France, the United States, uh, look at Belgium's imperialist history, uh, Japan and China. They're all built on like fucking colonial white supremacy nationalism all of these things that are constant israel the idf you know the ethno cl ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people like we do that across the globe and we're national, not different national supremacy is predicated in nationhood i mean this is uh, i mean like i'm going to say that like maybe the most controversial anarchisty thing i'm going to say but uh any any nation will probably replicate what we do if given the chance and, and um, which, which interestingly is a point that is made in paths of glory. I think, right. Yeah. 
like to, to like to connect this convert like uh, like a modern con- like a modern I guess uh, understanding of this with this movie that came out in 1957. Like that is something very much understood in the writing of this movie. Uh, but it's also interesting. I mean, a- as socialists, like we we should we should think about this a little bit, right? Because World War Two, I mean, World War One is actually the crisis that splinters the socialist movement irreparably all over the world. It does yeah. it in the United States. It does it in Germany. It it, it does it in in the U.S. and what would become the USSR actually. Like it, it's what causes the Bolshevik Menshevik split to really matter. Um, it's it's what causes the Pomerades here, like right, to have like gives them cover. It also it, it it is what forces the socialist movement to be liquidated into at the time the segregationist Democratic Party, because because I mean because of uh, Debs taking a principal stance on war. Um, not you know not at all that he commanded literally seventeen percent of the vote, um, which was almost as much as Wilson could command. It was not that far from it, um, and he was a third party candidate who could do so. And there's never been a third party candidate since then to have that much of the vote. Yeah. Um, but because he took an anti war stance, he was imprisoned with a lot of other people. But and, and also, I mean, to be fair, a lot of right wingers, a lot of paleo conservatives who also opposed war, war, what we would now call paleo because they didn't see themselves that way, were were imprisoned in that time. It was it was actually a liquidation towards an establishment of a liberal center that happened at that moment, and the war was pretext to do it. Yeah, um, no, hundred percent. Uh, Wilson Wilson fucking hated the fact that number one that like you know I mean the socialist movement existed, but even more than that, just like that opposition to his agenda existed. Like when when Debs was in prison, like the you know the sedition acts were invoked for the like exact purpose of making sure that like an anti-war like internationalist position, because obviously Woodrow Wilson had a pro-war internationalist position, couldn't formate in any way, shape, or form. It, it really, like, the principal stand of taking that anti-war position was something that really drove Wilson over the edge. And and it's funny because, you know, he had William Jennings Bryan as his Secretary of State um, leading up to World War One, who obviously quit um, because he had a, you know, in a quote-unquote, like, anti-imperialist position. And, you know, Wilson couldn't couldn't even find that tenable. So it's, that that moment in history really is when the U.S. left was decimated. You're right, and the progressive movement became was always not just in its Wilsonian form, but also in its Rooseveltian form and its, oh, its uh, Teddy Roosevelt form was always imperialist. And it, it led to weird coalitions historically during this time period because, like, some neo Confederates were backing leftists what were the equivalent of leftists against war expansion, particularly in the Philippines, which is where, where we cut a lot of the stuff that we would then use in, uh, in World War one, um, or two. I got to get my timeline, right? I went to the Philippine, the Philippine wars before. Yeah. 1898. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's, uh, league was, uh, you know, included both left wing and right wing streams. Cause you had left wingers who were against imperialism and right wingers who were like, we don't want the potential of like, you know, one fifth of the U.S.'s population being Filipinos, uh, and right. Know, no, so there you, was there were there were incredibly. I just finished uh, Stephen Kinzer's The True Flag. So the like, True I'm, Flag, yeah, that's I'm, a joke. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so I'm very much like in this mindset because I was on like a, a 
for the last like month and a half, I, I literally just listened to all of Kinzer's audiobooks. But um, no, like very much they were like pro segregationist Confederate anti imperialists that just didn't want to deal with us having like the territoriality and like whatever was owed to uh, like quote unquote like now third world countries like right but 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 like also you know there's like leftists that have a very like we don't we should not be imperialist because it's morally and you know just for our for our own state like it, it's wrong so it's an interesting coalition but at the same time like the, the fact that it was a controversial position is also interesting considering where we are now well you'll yeah. be right-wingers now who are anti-war right you have the ron paul's or Rand Paul, or th those motherfuckers, libertarians, right? <laughs> and I say that because those aren't, as, as me as an anti-war activist, anti-war vet, uh, someone who's been actually fighting the military-industrial complex since I left it uh, in 2012, or trying to, like people like Mike Preisner, you know, the, the most vocal people out there, the left-length, that's crew, I, I love them. Like, we don't look at libertarians as some sort of ally either, because they will be 100% anti-war, but 100% pro-Raytheon. Yeah, and pro defense cutters who are driving the and that, war and that was because the, they don't that make the that problem. connection. That right? was the problem with like the new left position is that the new left formed a coalition with libertarians against the Vietnam War, and it wasn't a sustainable anti-war position. It was kind of just like a general, oh, we shouldn't be in like this war, like you know what I mean? Like, like yeah, and Trump Trump tapped into that in 2016, which um, you know, if you talk to some, not not all, but so, some uh, uh, you know, right wingers, they were just like. Yeah, I, I'm voting for Trump because he's going to get us out of the wars. I don't know how many of you know my background, but like I got recruited into the right briefly through anti-war activism, through specifically that strain of anti-war activism. Partly, be, and to be honest and not to be super sectarian, partly because a lot of the anti-war left at the time was embarrassing. Yeah, um, no, this they was, were <laughs> like this was like 2001, 2002. Yeah. But but you have to watch out because they're selling because the nationalism they're selling is toxic, right? That's 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 the reason why yes. we have to be very careful with them because they still would like if they saw something as a truly defensive war. There was this weird. I mean, we forget about them because they weren't the Ron Paul libertarians. They were the other kind, the weird Ed Randy and libertarians. But like they they justified their pro war position. The Objectivist Institute at the time, and I guess now you're realizing how old I am. Um, uh, by by um, by the fact that they tried to paint Saddam as an aggressive force, and thus it was a just war on defensive grounds, and thus still okay by their libertarian nationalist framework, which the Rompolites and the Lurakwellites and, and such rejected, but they didn't reject it actually on like a fundamental moral ground. They rejected it on a factual claim. Like... So it's it's something to to kind of parse as we do as I think we have seen with the Trump administration. I have heard you know died in rule GOP people say, and I've even seen uh, Glenn Greenwald, who God bless him, I love a lot of his international reporting, but like say somebody like J.D. Vance is an anti-imperialist. God damn it! And so this is I'm gonna break this down real real easy for anyone who might be listening who's like you know not school like in school for this shit. But if you're anti-capitalism does not have anti-imperialism, it is not anti-capitalism. If your anti-imperialism does not have anti-capitalism, it is not anti-imperialism. Period. Your anti-establishment is not our anti-establishment. There was a there was a really like great uh, there was a really great interview with uh, Eva Morales recently where he literally said that he said I, uh, yeah. he said. Like, I mean, you know, Evo Morales, uh, like Bolivia's 
Oh, I know Eva Morales. Yeah. I just didn't hear the interview. I'd no, there's there's a, this really amazing interview where he said, if you're if you're um, if your anti-capitalism doesn't include anti-imperialism, like you're not truly of the left. Like, well, um, I mean, and this is the other thing about the libertarians, depending on which variety of libertarian you, you're dealing with, their objection is to do with the extraction uh, of money and not the warfare per se. They would be perfectly happy with privatized warfare being prosecuted around the world, right? You know, like, uh, uh, or, and they're perfectly happy with, uh, you know, the use of security forces, so long as those are private security forces. You know, when you dig down into a lot of uh, uh, libertarian philosophy, it really just kind of, it, it turns into a neo-feudalism where it's like, look, I want to do what I want. I want guns. I don't want to have to pay for this military. Uh, and if a company wants to like protect its interests, it can protect its interests. But yeah. why should I pay for that? Uh, so right. it's often a very. I mean, of course, there are like libertarians who like are delusionally like anti-war and believe that they can somehow square the circle of being like economic libertarians and uh, and sort of anti-imperialist. But I think you know a lot of the time this philosophy is a kind of we're talking two different languages and we mean different things even when we say the same word like when they talk about elites they don't mean the same elites as people on the left are we have that same vocabulary and i think some of the less informed people out there often conf uh, confuse the fact that we use similar vocabulary for some kind of convergence of ideological position when in fact sometimes it's just accident uh, that that we're using the same uh, vocabulary, and sometimes it's in a deliberate effort to confuse the term uh, the terms of debate. So when libertarians are talking about anti-imperialism, they're talking about a different phenomenon from what we're talking about when we talk about anti-imperialism, because we don't see imperialism as purely uh, being exercised through the military realm. It's exercised through economic, and diplomatic, and political, and even cultural uh, mechanisms and vehicles. So, you know, and when they're talking about it, they just don't want the U.S. military being deployed in such a ham-handed way around the world. And a lot of the time, you know, and this is true of liberals as well, their problem is one of, like, imperial management and mismanagement rather than any kind of principled stance against uh, uh, the American empire per se. I, to, to turn the hate against libertarians is a back to the movie, but also a point that this movie hits on about its slight cynicism towards the, the working class, which it is definitely sympathetic to. I, I want to say like Kubrick's sympathies and Doug and Douglas's and Kurt Douglas's sympathies are mostly with working class. And I guess with some lower management that, they probably shouldn't have some sympathies with. That's also I, my I problem with David I, Simon. I'll push back against this. I don't think it's towards middle management. I think because you see middle management being cowards in this movie just as much as you see the generals. You know what I mean? Like what but, but, so I, think, I think Kubrick's sympathies are with this French uh this French revolutionary liberta like liberty um mm. idealism. So what I, I, I wanna like, I wanna like I wanna talk about Kubrick's hypercynicism for a minute though. Yeah. And why World War One is a good locus for it, because one of the reasons why World War One destroys the left is is that the working class itself does not do what we thought it was going to do. No, what what socialists thought were going to happen. I mean, basically, was that no the workers would not tolerate 
the kind of treatment they were going to get in the military once they were conscripted into it. And they wouldn't fight. And what we learned is that it really doesn't matter. Um, I mean, it's not that the people there are shown as wanting to fight. It doesn't like the power of the of the state and the initial power of nationalism in the beginning. But it doesn't maintain um, is so great that we were wrong about what the working class's response was going to be. And that led to a lot of cynicism. And like Kubrick's cynicism actually does come back to the cynicism of this time, though, because like. The, the left really thought the working class was going to fight this more than it did. And, but but to be fair to the working class of the South, I think also no one realized how much weaponry and power the modern state really had until World War One. What I was thinking about why Kubik is so cynical, though, is whenever he sees people try to aspirationally operate within within this regardless of their class they have to take on the worst aspects of the class above them and it's interesting like i always tell people if you want to understand kubrick and his anti-war sentiment you don't want to watch full metal jacket because the second half of the full metal jacket actually muddles some of the message um for the reason talked about it's because it's anti-war it ends up accidentally glorifying war without meaning to you watch barry linden where you see someone really rise out of the peasant class into the, uh, the aristocracy and become, to use an advisor term, a human shit stain, by doing so, you realize that like by trying to engage with that class at all, if you engage with it, you become more and more like it. But also that a lot of the common people were not in the, in the place to really fight back. They would just get mowed down. And people didn't really realize that until World War One. So, what were your options? You could either try to engage with it, or you cannot. And like, like uh, Lorax said, like one of the things about Dax is Dax is kind of a little bit of a cop out because he kind of has it both ways. At the end, like he doesn't leave, he doesn't I, I, pay a price for not leaving either. I, I, I kind of want to counterpoint this because I think. I all right, so I'm not going to argue this in real life, but like in, in cinematic like the cinematic version of it, at least the fact that it seems like without Dax being there, there's no buffer between countless lives being lost and like the French bureaucracy, at least in this case kind of makes it so that Dax is kind of like Dax is kind of left with an impossible task because like, it's pretty clear that if he just leaves 50% of his men are going to get killed regardless. And and I think the fifty percent of his men do get killed, and the fact he's he's a failure for that reason. I don't think Dax is a winning character. Like he's clearly a character that's failed to challenge the bureaucracy. But I, I think it's pretty clear that you know Maru, uh, kind of um, he he's kind of he's kind of knows that Dax's weakness is that he actually does have empathy for the men in the trenches. So, yeah, I, well, that's that's a good point. I just I often think about the that trap, right? That we can think of it as a reformist trap. I, I mean, I'm a teacher; I deal with it all the time, like in my job. Like when I'm like, how much is my ability to like protect my kids actually predicated in the system in which I am operating in, and actually by trying to protect them, further maintaining the problem because I can only do it for so long and in such a context. And what's going to happen usually happens anyway. But but all right. So the 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 end goal though for that is that fifty percent of your kids are not killed by machine guns. You know what that's, I mean? Like, that's true. So, but 
the the but, so what I'm saying what I'm saying in defending Dax's idealism is that by him but by, by like if he walked away and a bureaucrat who literally did only want to like like you know a bureaucrat who literally only wanted to move up in that system replaced him there'd be no concern at all for human life like can you imagine what cuz that court that same court martial would have taken place either way with right. or without Dax Right, so let's say he, he had walked away, and a second version of the incredibly, like, like groveling, asinine, uh, uh, like prosecutor character that was like just, you know what I mean, like just, just murdered like second in command. Like, if that character had been like put in Dax's position, or if that, or if somebody like that that just wanted to move up the career ladder, it, it would have, like, they would have, they would have shot like thirty as opposed to yeah. four. Actually, yeah, yeah. I mean. I mean, a better ending would have just him taking the men, you know, Dax taking the men and Gurrent going to burn down the fucking mansion that the generals are in, right? Like, that that would have been a cool ending of saying, hey, now we're going to do mutiny. Like, yeah, because fuck how, this war. How it happened fuck this war. I know that's how not how it happened, but <laughs> we, we, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be like, you know, the movie's not accurate to what happened anyways because it was four yeah. and, you know, it was all corporals. It wasn't two privates, you know. It, so fuck, fuck the accuracy Make it anti. If you're gonna do anti-war now, it's 2021. This 58 different, 57. Sorry, different story. Different. Uh, this this film was banned, I think, in Germany and Switzerland for like two decades or something. It was banned like in that. France too, I think. Yeah, in France. Yeah. So like, it did its job for its time, but like now, if I were to remake it, I would have done a mutiny and like taken all the men and shown what solidarity collectivism looks like against the bourgeoisie of the generals right I think that, I and think that, that pmc I think that, a, that, a that pe petty bourgeoisie fighting with the proletariat which is the front line right opposed to siding with the uh true bourgeoisie of the the generals and i think that's where could have been better didn't of course now he's crossed and he's stuck in the system and it shows the system and how it's, war is a problem but you're still there Right, you're still I, fighting. I Your men are still going to die, whether you leave or not. I think They're that's, still a, going I think to that's die. A, a failure of Kubrick's entire uh, anti-war. I guess um, maybe not a failure, but I think a problem with his entire anti-war uh, a library. I guess because like there's you know there's a bunch of films he makes about it. Is he never really provides an alternative to? There is no out. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's so, the thing. That's the thing with all of all of the. Uh, particularly the more they're actually about war. I, mean, I think this is an interesting point David Simon did make is that this movie is about the bureaucracy of war more than it's about the war itself. Um, and and, and it can replicate in any institution, really. Like, yeah. yeah. I also think it's interesting that, I mean, to talk about capitalism being shitty a little bit, um, that <laughs> this movie is part of the era of Kubrick's work that was remembered by snobby critics like myself but not remembered by the general public because of rights issues, because it's a United artists film. It was never included in the cubic box sets that were readily available in the nineties. Um, that's also true for the killing. That's also true for even Spartacus, which people do tend to know about. And so like everyone thinks that like Kubrick's work really begins with like Lolita um, because of just an, an arbitrary thing of, of like capital rights stuff. I mean, that's yeah. why this movie was not widely distributed for a long time. By the um, way, can I just say The Killing, just objectively, like a good, interesting movie. Like I remember watching it, and uh, I took a I took a noir film class when I was in, which, mm -hmm. you know, but it was it was a it was a state college, so you know, it, it 
I'm not gonna like it makes it less snobby if I no. said but I just still remember like the scenes where they're where they're about to rob the racetrack or like just some of the most memorable and like compelling like scenes of the era. Like it, it's just like just good. I, I like I thoroughly I was also educated at a state college. It's okay. But I still ended up <laughs> I still have I still have to fight my own aspirational snobby snobbiness, which I think actually as a side note, but to get a little bit into like the way class politics works. If you're a working class person trying to work your way up, that is a, that is a temptation that I think is, is, is very real is to overcompensate with snobbiness so that you acculturate yourself to people like uh, Moreau, um, like, like that, like that ass kisser. I mean, the reason why, I mean, there's a reason why those ass kissers exist. And a lot of those people do come from the same social class as we do. Like, and yeah, they're traitors, but the the reason why it's it, it just, you don't, it's a big ass to ask people to be proud of their working class origins with every, every signal you have in your life is against that um, yeah. in a subtle way. And, and more fully, I mean, which is why this movie is so prescient, like more fully in the last 40 years, like since kind of the, the Carter Reagan era of like uh you know neo, like meritocratic neoliberalism like much like quote i'm not really but you know what i mean like, like 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 that obsession with like that that obsession with job title with credential like the like the neoliberal age is an age that very much uh like pushes pushes us to um like i don't know the neoliberal age like pushes us to uh like want to aspire past our class class is no longer taken as something that you can build solidarity in, obviously because those solid like those solidaristic institutions have been decimated like now it's something you aspire past so the fact that that's that's the case like this will be incredibly prescient because the one character obviously and i don't think this necessarily would have been the case if kirk douglas wasn't uh producing it but in this movie the one character that that you know, is literally a class trader is Dax. Like he's a he's a famous Parisian lawyer who decides I care about human life enough to defend these men. I'm a defense lawyer. Like, so it, it's interesting for that reason. But I don't think that necessarily. Like, I don't think if this movie was made today. They would have cared that much about that character. Like, it's part of like a social mm -hmm. conscious New Deal era liberal filmmaking. Yeah, like, I who, think I who think I think against. To be honest, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things that like Kubrick's personal politics. It, it's an observation Marx makes about uh, conservative artists that they tend to be more honest about class relations um, than than progressive ones do. He always like Marx like Steinhall for the same reason because he was just like, well, the 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 progressives just kind of like don't portray things as they are at all, um, and so people can't respond to the reality of the situation. And I think this movie does slightly suffer from that tension between Kirk Douglas's liberalism and Kubrick's just, frankly, I don't even think it's political. I think, I think Kubrick's kind of a misanthrope, frankly. Like, yeah. no, so. yeah, definitely. Cause I, I never get that feeling, even from like eyes wide shut, like the, the feeling that I get from those, like from any of Kubrick's films isn't like, Oh man is great. And that's why I'm opposing authoritarian structures. It's authoritarian structures are the inevitable result because People are fucking terrible. And you see that in Kirk Douglas's speech where he stands up and he's like, this is one of the times that I'm ashamed to be a human being. That's how Kubrick, I think, on a daily basis felt. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that he's ashamed to be of his class. He's ashamed to be a person. Like, yeah. 
and, that, and that's why was, that that was that's why that was written into this movie because I think I think Kubrick is it's kind of it's kind of like the idealism of cynicism like the fact that you're like oh I can see what human beings can and I think should be and nobody lives up to that no matter Kubrick who you is, are Kubrick is the cat with the salad and we are the women pointing at it <laughs> yeah <laughs> because like that last scene and I guess I mean. I, I wanted to go two hours, so I guess we could close out talking about this last scene. Um, because uh, So the, the last scene is kind of hailed um, overall as like a as like a, a portrayal of humanism. Like the fact that the fact that they start singing along with Hubert's future wife is like almost seen as like an act of, of, of humanism. Like, oh, like, look, this is showing that like the men are people but at the same time they, they're jeering her cat call like the, the amount of like like you know what i mean she's literally like a prisoner of war shown in front of these people who end up like like feeling sympathetic towards the song i guess or moved by it but it's not really a, an ode to sentimentality or, or emotionality or anything yeah i mean the implied threat of that scene and i mean like for example this is a it's a 58 movie there's a strong Mm -hmm. implication of possible sexual violence behind that yeah. behind that scene and Ooh. it's it is definitely being coded in that and the way she is being forced up there and the way she's being talked about um but there it's that i mean to use lame-ass marxological terminology it is a dialectical scene in that both conditions both sympathy with her and the cruelty of what they're doing to her are presenting are presented at the same time as both being real and um, that is something that Kubrick cynicism allows him to do that a lot of other filmmakers won't go there. They won't, they won't live in that moment in the same way, even though I think, frankly, I love Kubrick films. He's one of my, he's one of my top three filmmakers, but he hates people too much for me. Like oh, he really right. does. Like, um, No, I, I listen, I, I, I agree. I, I think that really in the movie, that's really the one moment of emotionality that isn't, you know, Kirk Douglas just absolutely coming all over like French law. Like <laughs> that's really, that's really <laughs> so I, I think I think it's interesting, but at the same time, it's also just a, it's war fatigue. Like it's not it's not empathy with her. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was humanizing the, the 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 troops, like the the French soldiers. And I, I am not even in the synopsis of it, like afterwards, it's kind of says that it says like oh this is humanizing moment of the troops but really it's a gross it's a very gross thing we're parading a prisoner of war a a, a german civilian in front of a bunch of rabid male troops who have been there for a long time and then this is right after that guy's talking about i haven't thought about sex because i'm about to die right telling the priest this shit uh, and it's Yo, like ralph weaker though i gotta say it's an amazing an amazing portrayal of a uh, you know it, it, oh, like that, that scene movie. that scene was uh apocalypse now had that scene too a very similar scene in, in uh yeah. where they were parading around like the uso but they were american women who uh but still that very very awful yeah. scene about sexual assault and shit like that and it's like these kind of things uh the way i like the way apocalypse now portrayed it more than i liked it uh in no they were they didn't were humanize animal, right this they was were humanizing. animalistic yeah like, they, they were, were animalistic they were animalistic yeah. inside in, in apocalypse now which I honestly, until this year, I hadn't uh, watched Apocalypse Now, and then I watched it three times to do a stream with uh, with Micah from Jacobin and Ben, which was 
we we had like it was great doing that but that was like one of the first two movie streams i did i think but um apocalypse now yeah no it's like they they are animalistic to the point where you start to like they, they you know the women get ferried away obviously in the helicopter and you have to realize like these are no longer people these are uh these, these are literally like animals at this point and in this movie, I think that it's a little bit too sentimental. Like, there's a little bit too much sentimentality. The fact that they start crying and singing along when you know that the actual threat is the sexual violence. Like, well, it's 1950. It's the it's the 1950s. There's only so far they could go with that metaphor. But I think as Vaughn says, for a movie, what 57, 58, that is like, that's that's like a strong implication of sexual violence as strong as you can get in a mainstream movie yeah and and uh the fact that they do the kind of like they all cry at the end is i was i would suspect i don't know is like a way to avoid the censorship right yeah if you if you ended up with them all just still going wild and then cutting out like the implication of sexual violence pro even though not shown on screen would have been too much Right. They're also they're also like kind of crying for themselves. They're not crying for her. Like their their display of emotionality is that they are war fatigued. It's not. Now, don't, don't get me wrong though. Didn't uh, Kubrick actually push against this scene? And it was more Kirk Douglas yep. pushing the yep. scene, right? I think. Yes, it was. Yeah. You know, you know, you know. It's interesting though. I was thinking when I was watching this movie is like how much uh, one. I was thinking also like Kirk Douglas, like totally in some ways is the embodiment of this worship. I mean, he's the kind of dude who to belong in Hollywood college because he had to hit his own origins. I mean, like his name, like he anglicized his name, um, uh, hit all of his really, all of his, you know, Polish ancestry. What the other thing I was, uh, thinking about it is that motherfucker's old. Um, because he's dead. <laughs> I know, I don't, but he only died last year. Yeah, no, like, he, he lived to one hundred and one, yeah. dude. That's insane. <laughs> who who lives to be one hundred and one these days? Kirk Douglas. No, other than Kirk Douglas, who who lives to be one hundred and one? But like you're doing, you're doing like retrospectives of him, and the fact that he oh. already looks grotesque in his fifties, and like you know, what I mean, forty, like. He like the, the he looks. Yeah, he's more forty in this movie in nineteen fifty eight, and I'm like, I'm Jesus. like, holy shit, that dude's a vampire! Like, <laughs> <laughs> who would want to live to one hundred and one? Honestly, I, shit, past sixty, I don't even know how he much I would enjoy like, this. I think it's all like you've got some, you've got like your health, you can move around, you got a bit of Viagra just in case you need it. You're fine, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, come come as long as you're in good health. I mean, that's the that's the main thing. We've, we've hit the two-hour mark. I feel like oh. people don't watch after that. So I'm just going to throw it to each person. Um, I don't Just final closing thoughts on this on this movie. Um, I love this movie. I think it is I think it is probably like one of the most effective anti-war movies until you get to the movies of the 70s. Um, that said, it is because of the nature of anti-war movies. I actually do kind of agree. It's almost impossible to do it in film. It's easy. I do think there are like real anti-war novels. Oh yeah. Um, um, yeah. Comic books even, but there's something about the glamor of the screen that people almost always take the wrong lesson and not just actually anti like anti-capitalist movies are the same way. Like Wolf of Wall Street, like everybody learned and Wall Street, same director, even um, they, they, they learn the wrong lessons from the movie and that's always a, 
a, a threat with this one, particularly with the the Hayes Code stuff. But I actually think of his anti of Kubrick's anti-war movies, it's probably the most effective, um, even more than Full Metal Jacket because it's. I, I think I think that it could have gone a different direction. Like I think that if Vietnam and 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 our myths around it have turned out a different way, that Full Metal Jacket could have probably been more effective. But the fact that kind of we took our defeat and somehow like in, in the mythos of American society turned it into a, 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 like a, like a victory for us kind of makes full metal jacket moot at that point, you know, like, yeah, I see Although that. Full metal jacket's not, not a bad Cuban movie. We're just gonna no, no, that. it's, a, no, it's a great movie. It's excellent. And a bad, well, even a bad Cuban movie is like better than everybody else's movie. But like, no, um, but there, but there was like a, you know, it's been, it's been chronicled, like sold, like, People who enlisted in the Iraq War, people who enlisted in Afghanistan, took Full Metal Jacket and said, "Like this is a movie that I resonate with." Which, on some level, like Ben says this all the time, like you know, uh, people like seeing themselves replicated in a film. But like on another level, it, it kind of you know just uh, like like uh, like like we saw in that clip earlier, like you know the the military bureaucracy is able to just uh, just you know take it and 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 continue on as if you know because there's no cure i guess for it there's no cure for ending one lorax <laughs> you got a you got some final closing thoughts uh down with the military and co industrial complex no i uh it was a, <laughs> it was great i mean it was great it's a great <laughs> film like i i you know I'm, su I'm surprised i hadn't seen it prior to this and i watched it this morning i'm not gonna lie a rough week um but yeah <laughs> it's 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 fucking good you know and, and i have my gripes with it because but uh, mainly it's because it's 1957, uh, which uh, Gene brings up really good points, like, you know, why it was the way it was. And, and I get that. Uh, but, you know, it sucks that we as a society don't learn anything from it. You know, it came out in 1958 and not a goddamn thing has changed. It was right after Korea. We still ended up in Vietnam, like literally five years later. It's kind of we started doing Operation 63, I think, were the first operation, like ground operations in Vietnam. And then you have, you know, that going on until 74. 80s come around we have a cold war and really the contras in the 80s and it just doesn't end right and then we iraq afghanistan and, and what kubrick said in this film was very important for people to understand and take in and analyze analyze like we're doing right now but it's i just wish things could change i wish people would understand what this movie how powerful this movie was and you know i saw that clip when we were watching uh simon um Generation Kills, another one. I totally forgot to mention that. And I haven't seen that one yet. But that's going to be one of the ones that I want to watch coming up. When you think yeah. of Kubrick, like, you don't think of this movie. Like, I, I've never, like, until the last few days, I know I know it existed, but, like, I hadn't seen it. And I'm a huge fucking fan, like, of, of, of his later filmmaking. So it's, like, I, like, Doctor Strangelove is a movie I've been watching since I, like, I think I was 10 when I bought it. Like, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, my, my dad just reminded me I watched it with him on the couch when I was, like, six years old, like, which I should not have done, but like, you know, like, Same. <laughs> like, so even, even someone like me that like has an understanding of this director, like this is a movie that's been buried. Like, yeah, I, I think, well, I wouldn't, yeah. And I wouldn't come on here without plugging left flank vets, right? I'm just one person out of the four of us and all four of us have different things to add. We all come from very different places in the U S and different backgrounds, different services uh, and different ideologies. Like some, some of us joined for, because we're poor, others joined because of military families. You know, we talked about from that Midwest area, right? Who parents were in the military. Uh, there are a lot of like, we can talk about the poverty draft another time, but 
uh, War is a Racket. Smedley Butler is always a go-to read. Um, and then check us out. Check out Left Flank Vets. You know, we we tend to speak more on issues first because, you know, there's no stop putting vets on a pedestal. We don't fucking deserve it. Um, yeah. And like, yeah, it's like our universal health care should be everyone's universal health care. It shouldn't just be for us. Uh, or yeah, my, my UBI, that. all that shit. Like I loved, free college, I VA home loan. You all deserve remember, it too. I can't remember who said it, but like at one point someone said Medicare for all is not the goal. Like it's VA for all. Like really is the... You know what I mean? Like the national healthcare system. Yeah. yeah, we, ha we well, have, we like, have it already. We have the infrastructure. Yeah. Like if all these hospitals around us were to be taken over by the VA, we'd have a nationalized healthcare system. Like, yeah. No more CEOs of healthcare insurance. Like, but any, I digress. Great film. Paths of glory. Fucking see it. And then check out left like Vets and um, follow everyone on the screen today because y'all are pretty badass. So we're going to, we're going to have you on a lot, a lot more. Like, don't, don't like, don't worry. Like you'll have a lot of other chances to, you know, I mean, if you want them to, to, to plug everything too. Um, Dean, final final thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic movie. It was a movie I hadn't seen before. Uh, you know, everybody else has said like pretty much what I would uh, agree with on this topic. It's very difficult to make a war movie from the perspective of a soldier that does not inadvertently glorify war. I, I think the only anti-war movies that you can make are ones that show the civilian costs from the civilian perspective uh, and on what that looks like. So even if you try to make an anti-war movie, uh, it can be, uh, uh, you know, it can be kind of appropriated for those reasons. Just like, you know, all those drill sergeants in the United States military use a script from full, full metal jacket, even though that was not the intention of the movie. I would also agree with Lorax about, you know, uh, I am very ambivalent on the ability of art to do anything other than reflect society. I did, you know, these this very powerful anti-war movie did not make, seem to make a dent in the American public consciousness. And as you said, Forrest, it has been swept away in the popular mentality. And even the anti-war movies we do think of, I remember, you know, seeing Full Metal Jacket as a teen, uh, platoon and going like, "Wow, this looks, this stuff is like badass. Look at these badasses kicking asses," uh, you know. So I think, I think that th this is a really important thing. But for a movie made in '57, I think that's as best good as it's going to get. And I would call this like a movie to watch on a rainy Sunday afternoon because, you know, it has that, it has that quality cinematography. Uh, has that amazing, dazzling cinematography, considering that it's strong, like strong dialogue. And for a movie made back then, it is still like highly watchable and enjoyable. And it's not long. So, you know, it's, it, I would put it in the category of movies like, was a sort of a, a type of movie from about like the mid 50s to the late 70s, which are good for like Sunday or Saturday afternoons when you don't have anything on and you can sit down and enjoy. It. Other than that, I want to plug This is Revolution. Uh, we're, we'll be back on Tuesday. I'm not going to be there on Tuesday, but we'll be there on Tuesday talking with Professor John Graham about um, uh, Native American stuff. Then on Thursday, we'll be doing Foreign Policy Thursday. Then on Saturday, I don't know what's going on Saturday, but Marcus from Left Bank Vets will be there on Saturday. Yeah, so, I was say Marcus and Jason, and we all have this inter interconnected uh podcast Extend stream extended family i guess this extended yeah. podcast universe yeah it's pretty cool and, uh, and gene Jason was nice enough to to lend me like two hours of his time on wednesday to go over uh 
we we watched uh sorry to bother you and blind spotting and did like a, a an amazing stream on that with conan neutron like it just you know the, the the amount of time he's willing to give up even when he has like a million things going on is incredible um no i was just gonna say the uh it was really a great film to watch i i don't have a whole lot to add other than um the fact that you know uh i feel like um to make the second Buckaroo Banzai reference with David Simon making the first, um, y'all are going to become our, our anti-war blue coat uh, regulars uh, while uh, we're, we're the Hong Kong Cavaliers up top here. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, thank you guys. Uh, this is really absolutely, uh, you know, uh, a banger film to watch. And it's so great to see baby Kubrick just, just, Nailing it, uh, and, you know. and Ralph and Ralph Meeker. Ralph Meeker. Well, Ralph, yeah, Meeker. Ralph Meeker because he started off this whole podcast. If it wasn't <laughs> for Ralph Meeker being our guest in the first in the first episode, yeah, I can't wait to just go through his entire filmography. On this show. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm gonna I'm, I'm scrapping movie night extra. It's now just the Ralph Meeker. Uh, oh, podcast. please don't. Well, thanks for inviting. It, it was uh, <laughs> it's been it's been fun and uh, uh, well, also, Andrew I, was my was my uh, my commissioned I, 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 artwork. Uh, it's it's yeah. um, <laughs> what uh Lorex says um about the about the movie it was a real good movie um and having only been familiar with Kubrick via full metal jacket this is like the first uh the second rather uh movie that I've seen of his and I actually do echo what Lorax uh says about us kind of being in this never ending culture of being in war, starting with uh, at least World War Two or World War One, and now into Afghanistan, it's um, and Iraq. I mean, it's it's just uh, mind-boggling, is what I could say. And actually, this is kind of fitting, though, given that it is uh, 20 years. It will be 20 years in October since we've been, to, yeah. been in Iraq. I mean, obviously, we're not leaving. Leaving, uh, we'll still be there. Yeah, uh, Iraq can vote. Afghanistan's about to be able to drink here in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. like, you know, we st Obama stood up AFRICOM, you know, and bought rebombing of Somalia after the night. Like, the thing is, like, it yeah. doesn't end, you know, yeah. with the Paz of Glory, it shows that, like, I wish more people could be exposed to this. What would it do? What did sorry to bother you do? But I think what Gene said about art is, like, it does reflect where society's at. And, like, that's all. Well, when will it change? Can I do believe art can bring people together for sure. And I think movies yeah. can do that, but it really is in like the way we talk about it and analyzing it is good. But you know, where else? Like, how? What? What else with the anti-war movement? What, what else can we do? You know? Um, I, I guess. I guess my my one final thought um, to give myself this space um, <laughs> is, is that you know when you guys were talking about the uh, the left, like new left libertarian uh, coalition that that opposes war, the thing is that that like the libertarian view of it is obviously that. Oh, like the fact that our our human casualties are so big that we need to now have mercenaries do that for us. Like capital gets replicated. So I guess I just wanted to add that into this last little bit of, of, of conversation is that, you know, even, you know, when, when it comes to like libertarian, maybe not the Ron Paul, well, probably still the Ron Paul version, but especially like the Ayn Rand version is like, you know, capital gets re like replicated in the sense of like maybe American lives don't get lost as much, but, you know, nobody else's lives matter. <laughs> in that like scenario so all right so i'm gonna sign off this because we we've hit we've hit the mark but um i i this is a good conversation <laughs>